This is Gay Gordon Byrne. Hi there. She's the executive director of the Repair Association, a professional organization that's based in North Haleden, New Jersey. The Repair Association is a group of small business owners and repair advocates that fights for our rights to repair the products that we buy. And this is necessary because repairing things has become more difficult to do in the past few decades. I talked with Gay about why that's happened and why she's so passionate about it and about what we can all do to make the stuff we own easier to repair again. I'm Josh Morgan. My conversation with Gay is coming up next on The Plural of You, the podcast about people helping people. There's an economic concept I'm sure you've heard about called planned obsolescence. The premise behind it is that some companies design products so that they won't last as long. And they supposedly do this to make us spend more money more often so that they'll make more money. I get uneasy when talking about this as a layperson because it's tough to know what every company's intentions really are. And some of the planned obsolescence literature out there is a little too conspiracy theory for me. It's also possible in a sociological context that our expectations for objects have changed in the last few generations. New technologies have made more resources more accessible to us, and our social interests are maybe a little more fickle given all the diversions that have been enabled in our world today. My point is that I don't think it's the stereotypical greedy business executive that's entirely to blame for some objects not lasting as long as they used to. But what is for certain is that companies in some industries, like electronics and automotives, are releasing products that are more difficult to repair. And you'll hear Gay talk about the reasons why in a bit. The Repair Association's position is that society suffers when companies build products this way, that only they can fix when something breaks, usually for a fee, or that they didn't intend to be repaired at all. But instead of rolling over and letting the trend become the standard, Gay and others in the association decided to do something about it. Gay and the Repair Association spend most of their time lobbying in states for bipartisan fair repair legislation. Fair repair laws require companies to make information and parts and tools available to repair products that they sell in these jurisdictions. Gay and others have succeeded with bills in a few states so far, and more are on the way. It really has been fascinating to watch the momentum grow for fair repair, and I like to think it's due in large part to Gay's efforts. Oh, and I just have to say on a side note that this topic is super sociologically rich. Like, after reading up for this episode, I'm convinced that our ability to repair things, or our lack thereof, is linked to other social problems that we face, like economic inequality and environmental degradation. One particular angle I'd be interested in more research on is the relationship between masculinity and products becoming more difficult to repair. As in men, you know, like me, not seeming as manly as we used to because fewer of us can fix things. But I don't know if that's true. That's merely speculation. I'd just like to read more about that. I believe after talking with Gay that fair repair is a sleeper issue with a lot of potential in society, and I'm honored that she made time to talk with me about it. If you'd like to get involved or if you want to talk with Gay, be sure to check out the Repair Association at repair.org. Here's Gay Gordon Byrne, Executive Director at the Repair Association. So how did you get involved in doing work like this? I literally over-volunteered. It's a little bit of a long story, but I had my entire career in the computer leasing industry for many, many years. And I basically retired. I mean, I didn't really want to retire, but the the fun had gone out of the business. 
So you were mainly leasing computers to large companies? Yeah, I mean, they would decide what they wanted to buy, and they might not want to purchase it outright. So we would step in, arrange a leasing agreement. We would wind up usually as the owner of the equipment, so we were tuned into things like getting it fixed, things like being able to resell it, things like making sure that the equipment was qualified for a maintenance agreement. And one of the projects that I got involved in, it led me into companies that do repair for big businesses. And, you know, I had interacted with these guys on and off for years because they were supporting my customers. I needed them around to be able to help keep, like, if I wanted to renew a lease. The people that were taking care of older equipment were very important in making that a good financial deal because otherwise the manufacturer would say, well, I want to charge you $30 gazillion a month to keep this thing on a repair contract. And somebody else would say, uh, I could do it for 30 bucks. Oh, I see. Right. And it would make my lease, my lease extensions much more valuable. So, you know, I was very familiar with the issues and, you know, what was going on. And then one day, Oracle bought Sun Microsystems and literally overnight said no more third-party maintenance, which at the time pretty much clobbered about 30% of the business it was being done in corporate repair. And all of a sudden, my friends now couldn't fix 30% of the equipment they used to fix the day before. It was a real call to arms that this industry was going to probably disastrously fold up. What year was this? 2010. Oh, so recently. Okay. Very recent. There was enough of that happening that the world didn't end, which was disappointing to us. We thought that the users would be in tremendous rebellion and we tried to get them to come forward and do something, which they would not do. Basically, a big company that's got a lot of money to spend on new equipment doesn't fundamentally care. You know, nobody was going to put their jobs on the line to go make noise and yell at Oracle and perhaps subject themselves to licensing audits from Oracle, who is otherwise a monstrously litigious organization. And they make a billion dollars a year with a B, a real billion dollars in license audits. But it got us involved. It got us coming together as a group saying, what can we do about this? And I was pretty much the only person that wasn't doing repair. And since I didn't have a horse in the race, I volunteered to um, throw some rocks and let my name be out there as the leader of the pack. (laughs) (laughs) So when I say I volunteered, I mean, that's literally what happened. (laughs) I see now. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it grew and became very compelling. In 2012, we really started to lay the foundation of making an organization that could stand up and, and fight this fight on its own. And uh, that's when it became Repair.org. I'm not the only leader, and that's been the fun part because everybody that I work with on our board of directors, they're all completely passionate about this. That's why it's so interesting to talk to you about what one person can do. Mm -hmm. This is very much the case of a small group of one persons. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. So was this an, an issue that you feel like you were aware of before the sale in 2010? I guess you and the people on your board of directors. Or was this something that the sale kind of brought to the fore and now you're taking action? In the world that I came from, the sale really was the icing on the cake of a long slide of manufacturers that had basically made it impossible to repair their stuff. And it was an incremental slide. So everybody was saying, oh, we'll, we'll pivot around this. We'll manage. We'll work around. We'll, we'll get over this, whatever. And this was such a whopper. 
that, like I said, it really required a fundamental change of approach. At the same time, there was lots of other problems going on with things like Apple MacBooks and um, cell phones. And that's when Kyle Weens from iFixit, he had his own effort going to try to influence change and open repair. Basically, by the time we had an organization put together, it was Kyle and I and our associations that created the organization. So we had a lot of experience fighting it from different ends. He's looking at it from the point of view of cell phones, and I'm looking at it from the point of view of mainframes. Mm -hmm. But it turns out it's the same exact problem. It sounds like you're very passionate about this. Oh, I am. What what makes you so passionate about this issue? Because it's everywhere. The problem is everywhere. Every time I turn around, there's another stupid thing that's broken that I can't fix because I can't get the information and the, the stuff is either made like trash so it can't be fixed, it's glued together so it can't be opened, or, or the manufacturers say, well, you know, God forbid you should touch this thing, it'll violate my proprietary rights, which I know, having researched it now, is, is total garbage. So, oh, yes, and my husband's chiming in from the side as well, saying yes, and there's injustices because there are laws that are supposed to prevent this, and they're not being enforced. You know, I run into this problem, I'd say once a month where, you know, I have like a little nightlight or something that, you know, the bulb burns out and it's like, well, I I don't know how to fix this. So I have no choice but to, you know, either put it in a junk drawer or throw it away. And, and, and I know it's just not little knickknacks like that, but, you know, microwave ovens and washers and dryers and even our cars. It's really frustrating to not be able to to have the knowledge to know how to fix those things. Well, it, and you should be worried that nobody else can do it either. <laughs> right, right. That's a good point, too. There's a lot of products coming into our lives that nobody fixes. Uh, the manufacturer never intended them to be fixed, so they make no provision for it. And yet they're being installed in places where you, you really would want to fix them. Uh, so everything that's hanging around making these networks work, that's on top of power poles and all sorts of places that you wouldn't think of, is now a repair problem because there's no repair solution. So it's going to become a constant replacement solution. And when you think about just the idea that you've got a fleet of products, let's use, say, it's some kind of wireless networking gizmo, and you start out with 2,000 of them around your town, you can't fix them. So now the only solution is, is there's a new one coming in, but it's not the same model and it doesn't have the same specifications and it might not really work the same way as the rest of the fleet. So even though you've solved a problem in terms of replacing a functional thing, you've started to lose the advantages of having the same thing. When you're managing large quantities, there's huge implications in any of these large distributed networks that nobody's paying attention to. You got to be able to fix this stuff or you're going to be in a heap of trouble and in a very large way may wind up with some of these Internet of thing ideas just simply becoming impractical. Mm -hmm. You can't do them when you're supporting 15, 20, 90 different versions of uh, an operating system. That much variety? Mm -hmm. You know, from a support perspective, it makes no sense to me. We've kind of touched on, on it already a little bit, but what kinds of problems does that present? Well, if you want to have that function, you've got to buy a replacement. If you can't fix it, you got to buy a new one, which for some people, 
maybe they have as much money as Donald Trump, but most of us don't. And most of us would really rather not spend that money on repair. It's not fun. You don't get up in the morning saying, gee, I can't wait to call a refrigerator repair man. (laughs) (laughs) Or I can't wait to go out and spend $2,000 on a new refrigerator when I really don't have the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very practical consequence. I mean, you bought it to do something. If you don't want to do it anymore, so what if it breaks? But if you do, you probably need to spend some money to either fix it or throw it away and buy a replacement. And that's where the downstream costs come in is how much does it cost to fix something? Why should it be the manufacturer that basically says you got to go to the dealership to get an oil change or the dealership to get a wire resoldered? I mean, some of the stuff that breaks on these on these circuit boards is really very small, very simple, and it doesn't cost a lot to fix. It just you, you can't do it without the information that tells you which of those little teeny weeny small parts is the one that broke. It's not that repair is hard. It is small when it comes to electronics, but it shouldn't be hard. It isn't supposed to be hard. It never was hard. Why we can't do it again is simply because manufacturers, if they have the option, would much rather sell you a new $2,000 refrigerator than make 50 bucks on selling a part to a repair provider. Can you speak about why there's been this shift? I mean, is it all profit driven or is it is it an efficiency issue? Like why have manufacturers become so protective over these types of repairs? Well, I think the protectivism has come about as an excuse to monopolize. Their incentive to monopolize is not entirely profit driven because they're mostly trying to cut their manufacturing costs. Their primary interest is in competing Um, on a price performance basis for the new product sale. So if they can squeeze an extra $5 out of their cost to provide the product, that's the kind of goal that they're going to have. And that's why you wind up with so much more glue and so much less mechanical fasteners. And that in turn leads to, you know, the lack of repairability in a lot of products. Fundamentally, it all works very nicely for them to have all those drivers kicking in the same direction, leading towards monopoly repair. Because it's a perfect storm for them. They lose nothing. It costs them nothing. And they manage to get more frequent product sales. For them, it's perfect. For everybody else, it's terrible. And I can remember as a kid uh, in my little hometown that I grew up in, there was a TV repairman. Yep. And I think a vacuum repairman too, you know, vacuum cleaners. And I don't know that that exists anymore. Those business models almost completely collapsed. Right. I mean, there's still computer repair and uh, maybe appliance repair, but some of those sectors have gone away. Yeah. And part of it is just that they never morphed their business to be more in tune with the times. But it's much more the case that they couldn't function. Because if you want to be an independent appliance repair guy um, and TV repair guy, you've got to have access to modern tools, modern parts, modern schematic diagrams, the stuff that you can't get anymore. The, the manufacturers, the, the Sonys and the LGs and those guys, they don't particularly want that little mom and pop repair shop helping keep TVs running for 8, 10, 12, 16 years. They'd much rather that those things fried and were never repaired. There was a story that Jeffrey Fowler of the Wall Street Journal did that got huge attention and he had gone to the trouble somehow of having a friend help him repair a big screen TV. And he was able to, with this 
friend of his who was a very adept at figuring things out, um, he was able to basically spend about 14 bucks and a considerable amount of time because he didn't know what he was doing. But at 14 bucks, he was able to fix his $1,600 TV. He was thrilled. And people were writing in saying, man, you really got stung for those parts. You should have paid about 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a wonderful story about repair experience by somebody that had no idea you could fix this stuff. Yeah, I, I had that experience a few years ago. Um, I had a TV that went out. And of course, you know, the, the natural instinct now is, well, I guess it's time to go to a big box store and buy another one. But in the back of my head, I was like, I wonder if I can, you know, look up the part that it might be and fix it myself. And I got on eBay and bought a, I think it was a $40 part, swapped it out, whatever the part was. And now it works fine. I've had it working since then. Hey, then you've, um, you've experienced it firsthand. That's what right to repair is. That's all we're really trying to do is make sure that people have access to that level of information. So how would you say that you're working specifically towards that sort of goal? Like what's a typical day like for you? I spend most of my time working on legislative advocacy because we're trying to approach the problem through legislation in states. I'll backtrack and tell you the auto story because it is directly appropriate to this. Basically, cars are rolling computers now, and there's probably a 100 or more little pieces of electronic parts in cars. And ever since 1992, when the EPA mandated electronic computers controlling emissions, the big auto manufacturers have been taking the opportunity of those electronic parts to refuse to sell them to independent mechanics. So if you needed a part, you had to go to the dealership. And then if you needed the firmware to update the ECU or the um, ABS brakes or whatever other kind of thing, you had to go to the dealership. So the independent mechanics were getting shut out. And they've been getting shut out for long enough that they got organized about 10 years ahead of us. So by 2000, they were trying to get legislation passed, and they tried where everybody tries first, and that's Congress. And everybody quickly learns that that's probably the least effective place to try to get legislation passed. Right. <laughs> and in 2012, they marshaled all their resources and said, we're going to go to the states. We're going to do a, um, a referendum in Massachusetts, which was a costly endeavor, but it was the, the best way for them to avoid going head-to-head with lobbyists all the time. Was that the first fair repair bill? Yeah, that was the first one. And it was really only because they'd been able to apply enough pressure from constituents who wanted right to repair. And so it got passed. And the auto industry, rather wisely, knew that there was other bills. There's probably a dozen other bills that were in various states at the same time. So it was all the same kind of language, but it wasn't the same language. So they said, we got to get ahead of this. They negotiated a memorandum of understanding between themselves as a, the Auto Alliance, which is a trade association, and two other trade associations that were able to represent the aftermarket players in that same industry. So your, your Pep Boys, your Midas Mufflers, all of your independent, larger independents got together and, and came to the table and made an agreement, which only covers cars. So what happened, the reason we got so inspired in 2012 is we took a look at the bill and we said, oh, my God, if they had just not used the word automobile and just used the word computer, we'd be done. Uh. It was that good. It was that close. So um, they hadn't. So we said, what the heck? We will. 
And that's literally what's happened ever since is that the first bill that we put on the table was kind of a not such a I mean, we had to work at it for a while to get all the, the language right. But if you read it, and if you're familiar with the automotive memorandum of understanding, you'll see it's the same. All of that's in the bills that we're presenting. So we're really kind of the natural extension of automotive right to repair. It's the concepts were perfect. So it basically just says, if you're going to do business in our state, Mr. Manufacturer, you've got to provide fair and reasonable access. Doesn't have to be free. Has to be similar to the way that you provide it to your authorized repair providers. So you can't charge them one thing and then charge an independent something totally different. It's got to be the same. Is part of your job working with manufacturers to convince them of the the merits of this? Mostly I, I wind up working with lobbyists. Okay. And the manufacturers hire the lobbyists. In some cases, I have direct experience with the manufacturers and we do talk with them. If they want to talk, we're happy to talk. What kind of pushback do you get against this idea? Or do a lot of manufacturers seem to be on board or is there resistance? Oh, there's huge resistance. Not from the small guys because most of them aren't trying to make money on repair. So they're really not all that hostile. Um, Some of them are smart enough to realize that it's a good thing for them to market equipment that can stay in use for a long time. They understand the importance of reliability and durability in their brand image. But for a lot of the manufacturers, their quarterly results really are driven by revenue and they have no choice. They've got to engage in this kind of behavior, just keep the ship afloat. Yeah. Appease the shareholders. Yeah. But some of these companies aren't making a whole lot of money on the product anymore. And they're, they're trying to transform their businesses to be services businesses. IBM is a great example. I mean, they, they say they're no longer a, a hardware company. But it's the hardware business that floats all the rest of their Watson stuff. What do you like about going into work every day? What do you find gratifying about putting up with all this? <laughs> oh, the opportunity to, to change it. It's why I wake up in the morning. I mean, I want to change this so badly. I want, I want the result of my life to be this. And it does seem like you have made a lot of difference so far. We're making some serious progress. I think this is going to happen. I don't know that I'll get any credit for it, but I'll know I helped make it happen. I joke with Kyle. We sat down after at a conference out in Chicago at this event and said, you know something? We're going to change the world. (laughs) (laughs) And it's an amazing feeling to be able to see it come together, to get up in the morning and to try to think of how to make it work. I dream about it. I think about it all night. I wake up in the morning and I can't wait to get to work. That's so great to hear. Because not everybody can say that. And then you, you're in this cause that you, you're firmly planted in. I'm glad to hear that for you. Oh, I, I'm having a blast. I really am. I'm not making any money at it. I can tell you that. At this point in my life, I'm a lot less driven by money. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I, I did well enough in the leasing business that I don't actually have to be caring about money. I know other people don't have that luxury. But I am so jazzed by what I'm doing. I'm so excited. I can't wait to argue with lobbyists. <laughs> Before you got involved with the Repair Association, do you think this commitment to a a cause like this, uh, do you think it came from being involved with this organization in particular, or is this something that you felt in some other way before, maybe in other areas of your life? Does that make sense? Well, I've had passion for other things. I've had plenty of passion in other areas of my life. But in terms of my ability to get involved in something that has true impact in the lives of lots of people, 
that came about only because of literally trying to help my business friends stay in business. And then when we began to see the impact that it would have on everybody, then it became a passion. I see. If someone is listening and they would like to get involved with product repair and advocating for the type of work that you do, maybe in their own area, what would be the best way that they could start to make a difference? Well, the easiest way is to just let us know that they're interested in helping and just send us an email. Info at repair.org. It gets to me. What kind of help would you need? Anybody that can make a phone call or write a letter to their legislators. This is state level. Saying, I want my right to repair is helpful. They can send them an email. They can make a phone call. We've been told phone calls are much more valuable than emails. Just tell them you think that right to repair is important. It's something that you need to do in your life. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's something you want to go into business. Uh, you, You have an idea. You can fix stuff at your kitchen table. But you can't really do it as a business unless you have the access to the information and the tools you need. So call your representatives and say, I want it. At this point, I'd say most states have somebody that has heard about us, whether they're going to file a bill in January, don't, we don't quite know yet. But we do have bills active in at least four states, maybe more. But the states where we have bills right now are Massachusetts, New York, Minnesota and Nebraska. Everybody starts back in a whole new session in January. So we'll have whole new bill numbers pretty much the same sponsors. We've done our legwork. Things are going to go really well as long as people make those phone calls. And it really is. It's, it's free now these days, right? Phone calls, phone calls are free. For sure. Now, if we wanted to follow you online and find out all the latest about these developments, uh, where would be the best place to do that? We are at Repair Coalition on Twitter. We have a Facebook account, the Repair Association. And your website's easy to remember. That's repair.org. Repair.org. That's the easiest place to look and see what's going on, even if it's not the most up-to-date. Is there anything I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? Actually, I just want to make a, I, I just want to tell people that legislation is incredibly rewarding. It doesn't take a lot of people. Um, you know, everybody thinks, oh, nothing gets done. I think that's the first response, actually, is it seems like legislation is incredibly complicated and like there are barriers to participating. So that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah. At the state level, it's so different. There's always somebody that's under indictment for something in some state, particularly. (laughs) (laughs) But my experience with state legislators have been that they are really focused on their constituents and that the constituents have enormous access and enormous influence with their legislators. It has not been hard to get legislators behind these bills because somebody in their district has come to them and said, I can't do this. My business is falling apart. I need help. Will you help? And they'll say, sure. And they find out what's involved and they go, man, this is a heck of a bill. This is really important stuff. And then then we're off to the races. So one person can start this whole ball rolling in in any state and it's not hard to do just show them what how hard it is to get something fixed can you think off the top of your head if if there are examples of like a single person starting something like that in their state oh totally i'll give you an example a guy named kevin kenny out in nebraska he's an engineer he built some patented device that lets farmers change the kind of fuels that they use so they can have a multi-fuel 
option on their tractors. And it's been really hard for him to sell it. And he got behind this and has the same passion that I do. And we got a bill in front of the legislature last year just because of him. Wow, that's encouraging. It's very encouraging. And it's been really consistently that way. Every bill that's been filed has started with a constituent and a legislator. You know, we haven't had to do rallies and haven't spent any money at all on press or TV or advertising of any kind. And yet these bills are significant and they're moving and they can move all the way through. You know, once we get enough people to call and email and, you know, make the noise, we've got over, ooh, let's say in New York, I think something like 17,000 people that have written through our email widget. You know, that's a lot. We've had, it's over 100 for every representative and over 200 for every senator. And it maps out to be completely all over the state in every population center, urban, rural, upstate, downstate, rich, poor. It's quite amazing. And it, that has been a huge help in uh, raising awareness of the importance of the bill within the New York legislature. And we, we can do the same thing in other states, too. The lesson I'm taking away from all this is it, one person really can make a difference, but they have to take that first step. Yeah. Somebody's got to light the candle. And yeah. then somebody's got to pick up that candle and get the fire going, get the fire going. But once it's going, it's easy to keep it going. But somebody's got to start it. And even if they don't want to stay with it the whole time, they can definitely start it. Although I will tell you, almost everybody that's volunteered to help is still contacting me saying, OK, when's the next meeting? What can I do? I mean, they really want to help. We're totally volunteer. I mean, there's. When I say nobody's making money, I mean, I really mean it. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. Every dollar that we collect goes right out the door to turn it into either somebody that we need to hire to help us. And um, I hope I don't use the L word and scare anybody off. But lobbyists are like fishing guides. If you're going into a new area and you know nothing about it, you would no more be successful at caching fish in Montana without a guide that was from Montana. We have had very, very good results with uh, the lobbyists that we've hired, and we just don't have enough money to hire more. We would gladly hire more because it's it's hard. It's very hard in these 90-day, 120-day sessions, and most of these legislative sessions are only – they start in January and they're done in April. So these are very compressed timeframes. If you don't have somebody that literally lives in the Capitol building – and can run in and see somebody on a moment's notice, it's hard. You, you don't have very good odds. And I wish there was a way to get more hands-on experience with that sort of thing, because I, I think from the outside, it looks a little intimidating to a lot of people. It seems like government's so far removed from everyday life, but it's really not. Oh, it's not. And it's so much fun. That's been one of the really pleasurable experiences that I found in meeting with these legislators and and going to these state houses and just seeing what goes on. It's really great. You know, <laughs> for no other reason, you should make a field trip just to see what, what really happens. The people that do it, I, I think very highly of. They're doing it, the legislators are doing it for passion. They hardly get paid for the work. Most of them are doing it because they are passionate. Public service is real at the state level. And people that have come to testify have been astonished at how much they're being heard. Well, I just wanted to say, um, I really appreciate all the hard work that you've been putting in. 
And you've been really generous with your time too. So thank you very much, Gay. Josh, we like to get the word out. And if we don't talk to everybody we can talk to, we're, we're missing an opportunity to get another, another letter or another phone call that'll make this all work. So mm-hmm. thank you. I, I like to find friends everywhere. I'm glad to hear that. And, and thank you again. I appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. I, nice to talk to you too. That was episode 36 of The Floral Review. I first published it on January 15th, 2017. Here's an update on gay and the right to repair movement as of 2023. In short, the movement has been slow because there's been so much corporate opposition to the idea of fair repair. But there are currently four states that have passed some sort of right to repair legislation in the last few years. Those are California, Colorado, Minnesota, and New York. And then there's more states that have right to repair legislation on the way, thanks to lobbying from Gay and the Repair Association. I think Gay would agree that each state's approach so far resembles baby steps towards actual rights to fair repair, but she's done her best to work with each state and their capacity for change. Gay is still the executive director at the Repair Association and has been for over 10 years now. And I think it's safe to say that her legacy will be the trajectory that our overall right to repair is on in the United States. I appreciate that she's fought so hard against such overwhelming forces and that she made time to talk with me about the whole process. Again, if you want to check out where the Right to Repair movement is today or you want to get involved, visit repair.org. This has been The Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan, and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all I have for now. Thank you for being kind today. Take care.